Happy Sabbath. Isn't it a wonderful, wonderful day today? I look around and I see snow-covered peaks and just the last remnants of winter in lovely Southern California. We hope that as you think about what God is trying to do in your life, that the remnant of the Spirit of God's divine grace be present in your life. And I know that will be the case as we converse. And so as we do every week, can I invite you to pray with me? Jesus, here we are coming together as the weather changes. And as we think about lives that need changing, we simply ask that you move and go before us that you be the catalyst for change that we so desperately need. We pray all these things along with a special blessing, asking and imploring your presence in our midst. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you've heard the news. If you've gone online or thumbed through a newspaper or even channel surfed, You've heard the fears of NATO and other governments as they think about Europe once again being plunged into war. And the questions are asked on many sides, what does this mean? What does it mean to the future of security in Eastern Europe? What does it mean for conversations on geopolitics? What does it mean as a generation that was never part of the Cold War now experiences this challenge and the challenge of growing up in a world, a nuclear world, a world full of peril, a world in which we are capable of destroying one another. You know what, friend? I don't think about those questions, important as they may be. What I think about is the principle that emanates as empires move and claim unilaterally land. It's this idea always, right? This idea of might makes right, this idea of Darwinian strength in the survival of the fittest. This idea of nations invite, invading smaller nations and deciding that they now and they now need to be masters of everything that surrounds them. They need to craft the future to their will. And that's what I've been thinking about as I hear the musings coming out of Moscow and the pleas and that come quietly from Kiev. Powerful nation occupying a smaller nation. And that's how most of relationships in our world work, don't they? The powerful take advantage of the weak. Well, this didn't start with an invasion. It didn't start with a unilateral claim to protect the sovereignty of one's border borders. It started years ago. Actually, it started with the rise of the very first governments Back in the time of scripture, there was this idea of covenant. And the language of covenant was adopted by governments and nations 
to establish a relationship between two powers. The covenants that appear throughout the history of the ancient Near East are known as suzerain covenants. It's a covenant whereby a stronger nation would enforce a relationship with a weaker nation, expecting and demanding tribute. The nation then would send whatever was required of it to its more powerful neighbor. And hefty fines were levied against those that couldn't keep their end of the deal. Like I said, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I was thinking about that this week as we hear the news coming out of Europe. And my mind immediately went to a place that the lesson touches on this week as we talk about Jesus, who is the sacrifice of this new covenant. It's a story found in Genesis chapter 15. Now, Genesis chapter 15 represents the ultimate completion of God's covenant with Abraham. And Abraham receives a vision, a dream in which this covenant, this suzerain covenant, is materialized. Notice what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, speaking of what God is doing through Abraham. He says, God took Abraham outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then, he said, to him shall be your offspring. And Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. And he also said to him, I am the Lord who gave you out of, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to, and gave you this land to take possession of. But Abraham said, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So you have this covenantal construction and the language is very much the same as that language that we talked about this suzerain covenant between two powers that are unequal. The language that is used in Genesis chapter 15 is language that would have been familiar to everyone. You know, here we talk about signing a document or about agreeing upon a treaty. But in the ancient Near East, the language itself was to cut covenant. And so in the Bible, God is establishing this covenant with Abraham, a covenant that is fully based on grace, and he is cutting something with him. Now, the human response to the Abrahamic covenant is circumcision. But even before circumcision occurs, Abraham is taken on a vision. And in the vision, he sees a heifer and a goat, and God commands him to cut these animals in half. And Yahweh passes through the animals. And in the language of a suzerain covenant, this would have been equally familiar. The imagery of cutting something and then passing through it would serve as a symbol of what would happen to one of the parties if they couldn't keep their end of the deal. Here's what's different about the Abrahamic covenant, though, in Genesis 15. Typically, it was the stronger party that required and delineated the covenantal responsibilities to the weaker party. Thus, one would expect, as one is reading this, that it would be Abraham, the one who is called to pass through 
the middle of the bodies. It would be Abraham who would be broken and sliced in half if he couldn't keep his end of the deal. This is the first and the only expression in the history of suzerain covenants where the stronger party says, may this be done to me if I don't keep my end of the deal. That's why we talk about the Abrahamic covenant as one that has been initiated by God, as one that is fully founded on grace, as one that takes these human relationships and power plays where the strong take advantage of the weak and flips that whole economy on its head. Abraham is called into a covenantal relationship, and God is promising that Yahweh himself will sustain that relationship as long, and if he doesn't, may he be broken. Well, millennia later, on the cross in Calvary, God was broken in half. God hang, hung on a cross and was split apart, fulfilling this promise of covenantal fidelity in Genesis 15. That's what Jesus is doing. You see, Jesus is connecting in Calvary back to this Abrahamic covenant of a relationship that is firmly founded on grace. God says, you can't keep your end of the deal. That's okay. I will keep both ends of the deal. I will keep covenant for you. And that's why I think I find the language in the book of Hebrews, the ninth chapter, so moving. Now, as we jump into the text with this covenantal conversation fresh in our minds, the section in, in Hebrews 9, starting with verse 11, begins with a Greek, with a Greek, Greek particle, day. Now, Greek particle day always follows another Greek particle. And the Greek particle um, that is intended is the one that is found in, Genesis, in Hebrews 9, verse 1. Now, it's the way your Bible would translate it. In the Greek is men. And when these two particles, men and day, are used together, they are intending to contrast something. And if you read... Hebrews chapter 9, you'll see what is being intended to contrast. You have the contrast between the first covenant in the tabernacle and the covenant that Christ has come to establish. It is this Abrahamic notion of being caught. Verse 11, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made through human hands. Now, what is this greater and more perfect tabernacle? I know that the temptation is to start talking about the heavenly sanctuary, and that is indeed present in the language. But we need to understand really what is happening. For the same imagery that appeared all the way back in Genesis 15 jumps onto the scene. As a, just as Abraham was taken to the very presence of God, now Jesus is facing the very presence of God. The cross and the 
blood that was spilled on Calvary is a pathway that allows Jesus to step into, into this more perfect tabernacle. And what is that more, more perfect tabernacle? That more perfect tabernacle is the very presence of God. So it is through this cutting, it is through this suffering, it is through Jesus' dual task as both high priest and sacrificial lamb that he is able now to cut through this chasm that sin has opened in order to step into the presence of God. He did not enter by the mean of blood, by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place by his own blood. It's clear. It is this cutting of Jesus, this slicing apart of his body and flesh on Calvary that has now allowed him to stand in the very presence of God. And because he stands in the presence of God, now we also can stand in God's presence. You see, God himself, all the way back in Genesis 15, was foretelling this. He was saying, Abraham, the covenant is cemented by this promise and in this promise that through the piercing of my flesh, through the cutting of my body, we will be able to surpass the sin problem. The goats and the sheep and the sacrificial system, it only intended to remind the people of Israel, the lengths to which God would go for this rescue mission. See, the sacrificial system had no salvific power. It was only intended to remind people of the place and the pathway to salvation, which is Yahweh himself. And that should stick in our minds because none of the liturgies that we participate in, none of the services that we, say, that we have, none of the confessions that we make, none of the fundamental beliefs that we possess, none of the commandments that we follow, none of the promises and the doctrines that signify us as unique, whether that be state of the dead or Sabbath, and yes, the sanctuary, none of them have salvific power. It is only in the sense that they can push us to recognize that the pathway to salvation is that pierced body on Calvary. Today, today we can begin to carve out a new language to talk about Adventist theology, a language, friends, where we can say and we can confess that though Jesus doesn't represent the whole of Adventist theology, he must represent the lens from which everything can be understood. That's what it means to be high priest and sacrifice. Continue reading with me to the 14th verse. How much more than will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, to cleanse our consciousness from acts that led to death so that we may serve this living God for this reason. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Now, there are a vast array 
of theories of atonement. But the problem with most of them is that they end up focusing on us, on how we relate to God, on what status we possess before God, when we forget that if the author of Hebrews is right, as he pleads for us to remember that Jesus is the initiator of the covenant, that Jesus is the enforcer of the covenant, that Jesus is the promise of the covenant, and that Jesus is the conclusion of the covenantal promises. For followers of Christ, then, our language of faith needs to be based on a rich Christology where we can say that every single doctrine that we espouse, that every single belief that we profess, and that every single promise that gives us hope for the morrow is grounded in Christ and in Christ alone. And perhaps that is what leads the author to conclude this beautiful depiction of this new covenant that frames Jesus as both high priest and sacrificial lamb in the following way. It says, verse 28, So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear the second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those waiting for him. See, the promise that was made to Abraham all those years ago was that it was only covenantal relationship that would bring salvation. That's what he believed. That's why he leaves Ur of the Chaldees for a new beginning, because he is deeply desiring salvation. Now, we, we fool ourselves when we think that salvation was going to come through adherence to the law. For Jesus is clear, salvation comes only through the ransom of Christ. Now, I said that there are varying theories of atonement. There's one called ransom theory that states that Jesus had to pay the ransom rather to God or to the enemy. But you know what I think the author of Hebrews means? I think that Jesus came to ransom us from ourselves, from the fear, and the guilt, and the shame. He came to ransom us from those shackles, those shackles that keep us prisoner, those shackles that believe that I have to be an, the ultimate emissary of hope that I have to find my pathway to heaven, that I have to restore and repair my relationship with God. And today Christ is saying, you are free from that. For it is for freedom's sake that Christ has set you free. Don't cheapen the sacrifice. Don't forget the covenantal promise. Go and live live freely. Joey, Covenant, Hebrews, wow, what a, what a beautiful chapter. I, you know, as I've reread Hebrews over the past couple of weeks and months, I think Hebrews 9 has become my, my favorite chapter in the whole of the book. It, it just gives such a fresh perspective of who God is and what God does. Yeah, and that covenantal message that we had the privilege of being able to look at in previous um, quarters. 
it, it runs throughout the entire passages of scripture, right? Mm -hmm. And especially in the book of Hebrews, which focuses on the connection between the first covenant and the second covenant. So, so powerful. And yet what undergirds it, like you said so beautifully, is Jesus. Jesus mm -hmm. is at the center. He is the, I, I loved how you said it. he's the initiator. He's the, I'm probably butchering your words, but guarantor. He's the executor. He is, he is everything of the covenant. And as long as we keep our eyes on that and don't get caught on, on all of the extraneous nuances, we won't lose our way as we journey through these covenants. Yeah, Joey, that's such a good point. I, I loved how the lesson talked about this idea of sanctuary, mm. uh, which was another theme that was woven in through, uh, through this week's study. But I, I kind of am so glad that it was connected to this particular passage as uh, the author of Hebrews talks about the covenant and how Jesus is now the guarantor, as you've said, of this new covenant. Because really the sanctuary isn't about what Jesus is doing up there, um, but rather it's the fact that Jesus now is in the Holy of Holies. And mm. what that means is that Jesus is now in the full presence of God. Yeah. And because Jesus is in God, in the presence of God, now we have the confidence that we too can approach yeah. the Holy of Holies and be in the presence of God yeah. without shame. And that is, that's really the good news of the gospel, that, it, that Jesus opens this pathway and tears these curtains that, mm. that separate us from experiencing God's presence fully. While Moses uh, had to go up a mountain that was shrouded mm. in darkness, yeah. and Abraham has to turn his face mm. to not look at God, we now, through Jesus, can be in that direct yeah. presence of God. And that's really what the sanctuary is about. Yeah, that, you know, that language is something that's very familiar to us, the idea of um, approaching the throne of grace, mm -hmm. right? We just kind of throw it out there. But think about how mind-boggling that must have been to the Jews, the idea that anybody, anybody could enter into the most holy place. I mean, that was the place that, the high priest could only go in mm -hmm. and he could only go in once a year, mm -hmm. right? And even when he went in once a year, there was a lot of fear and trembling approaching that because things could happen if, if, if people didn't uh, correctly or completely, you know, um, confess their sins. And there, there are bad things that could happen. And so it was with a lot of awe, a lot of fear and trembling that they approached that throne of grace. And now Jesus is saying, the, the, the curtains have been parted, and because mm. of my sacrifice, all of you, all of you are welcome with confidence, mm. he says. You can confidently approach this throne of grace. That imagery must have been mind-boggling to the Jews mm -hmm. as they heard this, right? And, and yet that is what Jesus does for us. Mm. Jesus, Jesus has made it possible for sinners, broken sinners like you and I and all, everyone who's listening in right now, to have the confidence to approach that throne of grace because Jesus made it possible. What a beautiful image. I And think about kind of the, the difference. And so he talks about this idea of many sacrifices versus the one sacrifice. And so like you mentioned, right, in the Old Testament, you would go to uh, the Holy of Holies on one day, right? The, uh, the Day of Atonement. You could actually go, and it was the day where the slate was wiped clean. 
But in order to have that happen, there had to be several things that happened throughout the year. Mm. You had to be faithful with your sacrifices yeah. and you had to confess your sins. And then you could go and approach God's presence or you could go and approach God's presence through a mediator, which was the high priest. And then you would have to wait 365 days and then you would have to do it all over again. Mm. Here he's saying, you don't have to do anything. The sacrifice has already been done. Wow. And the pathway is already open. Mm. And it's been open and left open because of what Jesus had to do on the cross. So the day of atonement mm. is not something that you have to keep coming back to and back to and back to and back to time and time again. The cross is it. Mm. The justification of humankind has happened on Calvary once and for all. Mm. And now the only thing you need to realize is that that pathway is made available mm. to all of us. Wow. And it is made ab available regardless of if you've made confession and sacrifice and you've gone through all these rigorous uh, acts of worship that they had to go into. The only thing you have to do is you have to say, the path is open. Wow. Yeah, and that really does point to the completeness of Jesus' sacrifice, right? That all of these other sacrifices and the, the lesson you know, did a great job of summarizing them um, the various different sacrifices mm -hmm. that are, that were available, the purification or guilt offering, there's the you know burnt offering, all these different offerings, the grain offerings that people could do, but they all pointed to different facets mm -hmm. of what Jesus does for us, right? That he he cleanses us not just from sin, but also from death and corruption. Mm. That he he reconciles a relationship with him. That he reconciles a relationship with other people. Like that, all of these things are a result of Jesus's death on the cross. Mm. And sometimes, I love what you said about the models that that we that we sometimes use. Sometimes we get lost in those models when we should realize that they are just models. Just like these sacrifices showed one facet of Jesus's mm. complete sacrifice, those models are helpful in as much that as they show one facet one approach to what Jesus did for us, but none of the models by themselves are complete, right? Because they only can show a limited perspective. It's kind of like, you know, in chemistry, if you remember back all the way to the high school chemistry where they talked about all these different models of, of um, atoms, right? You know, there was, you know, the the plum, the plum pudding models, and they had all the Niels Bohr model, all these different models of, of, of atoms. But what they say is none of them actually completely capture the reality of what's happening inside an atom, mm. right? Actually, what it, it's more like is that, that, you know, we talk about the, the electron being in level one, but actually it's, it's, more likely to be in level one, but part of the time it's in level two, maybe even in level three, and it drops it. So there's all this, nothing can actually completely capture the reality. And, and that's just an atom. We're wow. talking about God. So how could we possibly with one model capture the reality of all that God did for us and what Jesus did for us on the cross? And so as long as we don't get too married to those models and instead focus, like you said, on Jesus and say, this shows just one facet of what Jesus is doing for us. Joey, you lost me at chemistry, <laughs> but I like the analogy. Um, and I love the idea of looking at these, at these atonement theories mm -hmm. as models that represent part of the reality. So for example, mm -hmm. you have 
the one that started it all, which was uh, Christ the Victor, mm-hmm. and so that in the cross you represent Jesus as victorious yeah. over sin, and that's part of the truth. But it's not just Jesus's victory over sin, because the question then becomes, well, what about Jesus's life? What about this commitment to formation and transformation of our of our spirit and our souls? And so moral influence model says, no, 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 no. Transformation is also important. Yes, we are. We are celebrating the fact that Christ is victorious. But Christ, Christ is a victory gives me the capacity to live to live my life a different way. Yeah. And so then you have uh, ransom theory, and in ransom theory, you say, well, a price needed to be paid, and we usually say, well, the price was paid either to either to Satan or to or to the Father, and we say, well, yeah, but I mean, what is somebody that that needs a ransom? It's it's a captive, and so really, what it is is ransom theory is absolutely right. The cross doesn't only give me uh, the the faith and the assurance to say Jesus is victorious and his victory gives me a path to transformation. It also says Jesus's death and resurrection allow me the possibility of being free. I am no longer a prisoner to sin. Wow. Um, And then comes satisfaction, right? The idea that when you need to, when, when sin happens, there are, there are these consequences and, and a price needs to be paid. Yeah. And that's true. Like the, this idea of taking responsibility for our, for our actions is really important. And you can't expect transformation without responsibility. And I know I'm getting excited because it's true. Every single one of those atonement models has a partial truth, but it is only in Christ that we can see the completeness wow. of the picture. Wow. Wow. Now, friends, you just got a primer in all of the different theories um, that try to answer the question of why did Jesus have to die on the cross, right? And as you pointed out, it's not just one of these things. Mm. It's all of these things. And when we put them together, it paints this beautiful picture of how Jesus died. Yes, he died to pay for our sins, but he also died to to free us, to ransom us, to to free us from the chains of sin and having to do sin, to to reconcile our relationship with God, to influence us so that we can live better Mm -hmm. lives. It's all of that. And once we grasp that, then we really realize how truly majestic God's sacrifice for us really is. And and when we when we see it that way, the cross. Then I think, and the lesson talked about all this imagery, right, with the early Christians, um, that straight away from the cross because of the heavy, heavy baggage, right, that the cross had. So, you know, early Christians use uh, depicted pic- pictures of either fish or mm. uh, pictures of miracles, and, and through all this time, what really ends up becoming the paramount symbol for Christianity is this cross. But I don't think we've understood completely what the cross means. So when we look at the cross, we say, ooh, that is God's judgment upon sin. And it is brutal. Mm. And it is devastating. And so one can say, ooh, I I belonged up there. And that's how God was going to punish me. But that's not what's happening on the cross. As you've mentioned, the cross is judgment, is God's judgment against sin. But judgment occurs when... God is being nailed to the cross and says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, Mm. not what they do. The cross is our 
The cross is our action towards a God that comes and loves us. The cross is sin's reaction mm. to the gospel of grace. The cross is how we treat each other and mm. how wow. we dehumanize each other. Wow. And God's judgment towards that is forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. So as we've heard our senior pastor say every Easter, mm. the cross represents mm. humanity at its worst <laughs> and divinity at, at its best. The cross is God's verdict upon a broken human family where he says, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. Wow. Wow. Yeah, the cross does show the disgusting tragedy of sin, but it also shows the tremendous beauty of God's mm -hmm. grace, both at the same time. Oh. I think we only realize how tremendous God's grace is when we realize how tragic and terrible sin is. I think perhaps part of the reason we struggle with the idea of Jesus dying for sins and having to go through that is because we don't always grasp how terrible sin is, how destructive it is. You know, it's easy for us most of the time to kind of sugarcoat our sins and to think it's not really that bad. And, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty decent person. Mm -hmm. I've heard that so many times. I've said that so many times to myself, you know, I don't, you know, I, I would never murder someone, you know, I, 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 I'm a nice guy. I, you know, I, I, I do nice things for other people. I'm a pretty good father. You know, I, mm -hmm. I say these things about myself um, so that I can sort of ignore the darkness that really does live inside of me and how broken I really am, you know, and to, and to just try to go by with life. But the cross lays bare all of that and says, no, this is the ultimate result of, of your sin. This is who you are. And it's, it's difficult to look at, which is, which is why a lot of times, like, like you said, um, for a long time, it was difficult for people to accept that as a symbol of Christianity because it was so raw and 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 disgusting. And now, now only after we've sort of glitterified it, right? Like we 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 make it, we put gold-plated crosses and you know, we put it on the back of our cars, and it doesn't carry the same weight of how terrible sin is. Yeah, so think about what you just said. Um, we do, we have sanitized the cross. Mm. I can't I can't imagine uh, something more brutal and more shameful. And the Romans were great at inflicting pain and shame. Yeah. Um, and that was the purpose of, of the cross. The cross, the death by crucifixion wasn't only intended to punish you and to hurt you. It was intended to shame you. Mm. Wow. God shamed himself so that you and I no longer have to be ashamed. Mm. And that is so transform. Under grasping that concept is so transformational, um, which is why it's, it's woven through scripture. You see it in Genesis. You see God saying, Abraham, if I don't keep my covenant, mm. let me be torn asunder. And you see God being torn asunder, being shamed, yeah. being vilified, being objectified, being wow. dehumanized so that I don't have to feel shame anymore. Mm -hmm. um, it's so powerful mm -hmm. to be freed from shame. Yeah. 
Because shame is this is this voice constantly that is telling me you're not good enough. You're never going to measure up. Mm. You're dirty, you're disgusting, you're filthy. Mm. Who's going to love you? Wow. And God says, "You want to see dirty and filthy and disgusting? Look at the cross." Mm. You don't have to be ashamed anymore. Wow. Wow. Yeah, you know, talking about sanitizing the cross, I, I remember one preacher, I don't remember who it was, saying, imagine instead of having a symbol of a cross everywhere, you just had a symbol of an electric chair mm -hmm. and you mounted that on your churches. You know, put an electric chair on the church wall, a guillotine, put that on the mm. church wall and hang that there and you would get a sense of what the cross meant to the people mm -hmm. who originally saw it. And yet, as you pointed out, the beauty of the cross is that Jesus takes that instrument of shame and transforms it into an instrument of grace. Right. And as you said so beautifully, the, the covenants, um, the suzerain covenants that, that happened between a stronger party and the weaker party, it was usually the burden of, of fulfilling all of the obligations where it was on the weaker party. And what would happen if they didn't fulfill those burdens would be that they would be killed. They would be, you know, quartered. They would be destroyed. Right. And yet in the covenant that God makes with Abraham, as you pointed out in Genesis 15, it is not Abraham who has to walk through those split carcasses to say, let this happen to me if I break this covenant. It is God who walks through, the stronger party who walks through. Mm. And that's exactly what he does for us on the cross mm. is he, the one that didn't break the covenant, who didn't deserve it, is the one who died. Mm -hmm. and, and he died, he died because that is the level of commitment mm that God has. It's so incredible um, when, when we talk about how committed one is to anything. I mean, when you're committed to a relationship, to a craft, uh, to art, to a project, the limits that you will, that you will go through. I was reading a story of um, a speed skater um, who tortured her, her body um, and endured pain and, and, every, and all these, these just horrible physical ex excruciating experiences because she was committed to the craft. Mm. And the level of commitment, and God says that level of commitment wow. I have, not, through, not to my name or my power or my majesty, or my reputation, mm. I am committed to you. Mm. And I am willing to risk my name and my, and my reputation and my body mm. because that's how committed I am. Wow, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we just passed the Olympics and what these <laughs> Olympians do to try to win a, a medal any medal or even to get there, the level mm -hmm. of commitment and sacrifice that they have to go through is incredible. But even all of that pales to the sacrifice that Jesus had to go through, that he would he'd be willing to let go of his divinity in heaven, his, his, um, his home in heaven, come here on earth as a baby to die, to the, the whole process of incarnation. And then not only that, but to die in such a shameful way Man, to have people 
spit on you, to curse you, the very people that you're trying to save, to be so misunderstood. And for that, to do all that because he loves us so much. That's just incredible. And so the the good Adventist in me, Joey, is thinking about that. And I don't remember if, uh, and I don't know if you've seen it. Um, I remember being a theology student um, and going, I was in my second or third year of uh, undergraduate work, and the Passion of the Christ came out, and it was this Easter thing. Yeah. And it was like, okay, well, Christianism comes to Hollywood, and you saw that. And I remember just coming out of that of that movie theater full of tears mm. but they were tears that were driven by guilt mm. right i put them there mm-hmm. i did that look at what i've done and it was there it was terrible mm-hmm. and i think maybe it's because i've gotten older or maybe it's because i've understood the gospel better or maybe it's because I've continued to be shown grace by by both God and, and people who who extend grace to me when I don't deserve it. That I I see that that process a little different now. Mm. Um, you should come away from the experience of the cross transformed, not because you feel guilty. But because the experience of a God who does everything that you just said that God did leaves no other option but to say what the centurion says mm-hmm. as, he, as he witnesses that and say, truly, this was the Son of God. Mm-hmm. And so transfer, transformation, and this is where I say the good Adventist uh, is kind of echoing in my ear, transformation is important. The way we live our lives matters. Mm-hmm. But it's but that transformation ought not to be driven by guilt or by fear. It ought to be driven by the realization that this is the way that God loves. Mm-hmm. This is how reckless, how committed, and how radical God loves. Mm-hmm. And that you cannot come away from that experience. The old monastic fathers used to call it uh, the process of illumination when it finally dawns on you. This is what the gospel is. You cannot come from that, come away from that experience without experiencing transformation. Yeah, I I love that. I love how you brought us back to Jesus again, because if we get if we get caught up with again with the process of crucifixion and how terrible it was, I mean, I mean, I, I, I do think there is some benefit from realizing how terrible the crucifixion process was. We've talked about it a little here today. But if that's what we focus on, then all it ends up with is shame and despair, right? But if we focus on Jesus, like the centurion did, I mean, he witnessed, he he executed a lot of, of that mm-hmm. process of crucifixion. But at the end of it, what he saw was the Son of God hanging on the cross. And if we miss the Son of God aspect because we're so caught up in the shame mm. of and guilt of the whole process, then we've really missed the point because what what Jesus did for us on the cross takes shame and transforms it with grace. Mm. And we need, that's what he does for all of us, Mm. that he takes our shame and he makes it grace for us. I want to linger over that thought for a moment because I think that you can trace most of the mistakes that Christianity has made at least over the past 700 years to what you just said. So when you just focus on the process, Joey, 
on the pain and the lashings and the nails and how brutal it was, mm. Christianity becomes a religion of blood and torture. Mm. And when you become a religion of blood and torture, it becomes really easy to make that, li that leap where you justify blood and torture um, because after all that, those notions are ingrained in your faith language, i.e. the Inquisition, the Crusades, uh, Christian radicalism, whatever you, uh, Christian nationalism, whatever you want to call that. Um, that, I think, is a failure to really see the cross for what it is. It's focusing mm -hmm. on the blood and the torture. Now, when you focus on the sun, what you get is transformation. Really what transforms the centurion isn't the hellacious spectacle that he's witnessing, that he's witnessed because as you said, he's this is old hat for him. Mm -hmm. He's seen this a lot. What he has never seen is someone going willingly there. Mm -hmm. What he has never seen is somebody laying on that cross without fighting. What he's never seen is somebody not cursing out. What he's never seen is somebody, is somebody saying, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. That, mm. that is where you find divinity at its best. It's mm. reaction to blood. It's reaction to violence. It's wow. reaction to torture. So rather than glorifying violence with the with the centurion sees is God's reaction to violence by, as he willingly sacrifices and, sub, and subjects himself to it. And I think that's where transformation occurs. And when that happens, um, Christianity becomes a, a religion that is completely different. It's not focused on glorifying violence or torture. It is focused on the son who actually shows us as you as you have i think so articulately articulately pointed out how devastating and brutal violence is yeah yeah it uncovers it um i'm probably um completely mispronouncing his name but i remember a martyr who was martyred for his faith in in, in um in christ um telemac marcus telemac mm -hmm. yeah who who was executed by gladiators and but his the way that he the honor with which the the attitude with which he approached that martyrdom willingness that he approached that martyrdom just lay bare for people bloodthirsty crowds how terrible this was mm -hmm. and it that marked the end the beginning of the end for for gladiators mm -hmm. across the roman empire and and that's that's what Jesus seemingly does here, but not only that. To take it even one step further, what the world had never seen before was also the fact that that man who died on the cross three days later arose from the dead. Mm. And that, like Paul writes, that is the basis of our hope, because if all we get is the cross, then. Like, like Paul writes, we are the, the hopeless, the most hopeless of all men. But we don't just get the cross. We also get an empty tomb. Mm. And Jesus, that again is the transformation. Jesus takes the worst of humanity and reveals the best of mm. God. That's so beautiful. And, I, and if, we, if we 
leaves today's study with just that in our minds, that, 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 that seems to be what the author of Hebrews is saying is, yes, all of these, all of these sacrifices, all of that death, all of the, the, uh, the animals that died, they were pointing to something that was so much greater that it has now been revealed to all of us, mm. the best of divinity. Wow. Yeah, and, to, and to have that picture complete, you need to do what we've done with the atonement theories, which is look at it in its complete complexity. So incarnate being, in, being faithful Christologically means that we follow a theology that attempts to be incarnational. And what is that? Well, it focuses on Jesus's life. It's, it focuses and it mourns and it takes the side of those who suffer as Christ did on the cross. But then it provides the hope of the empty tomb where the mm -hmm. empty tomb, Sunday morning, is not an appendix mm -hmm. to the story. Mm -hmm. It is the culmination wow. of all the covenantal promises that God has made. I love how you put that, Joey. Let's pray as we, as we close. And I think I would like to leave you with what my colleague just said. If you leave this place with nothing else, just remember that in Jesus, you have the best of divinity. Mm. Good and gracious God, every time we look at what you've done for us, we're just left in awe. In awe of your love for us, in awe of your commitment to us, in awe of the sacrifice that you made. Sometimes we look at the darkness within ourselves. When we really look, we can get a little horrified by how broken we are. But you show that nothing is too horrific for you to transform. On the cross, you take the worst of humanity and you reveal the best of divinity. And so we ask that you do the same within each of our lives today is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, today I'm speechless. Nothing else needs to be said. Christ in Christ alone. Mm -hmm.